So a pastor in a small community decided to do some home visitation of people in his church family. So he went door to door and he went to this one house. He knocked on the door and uh, no one came to the door. So he knocked a little bit harder and uh, he could hear somebody moving around. He could hear the footsteps. He knew someone was home, but they never answered the door. So he was annoyed. So he took out one of his business cards and he wrote, Revelation 3.20, though I stand at the door and knock, if any man would hear my voice and open up the door, I would come in and be with him. He left the card at the door and left. Following Sunday rolled around, they had a worship service, church family gathered, and then they would leave. There was one lady, the last lady to leave was the lady who owned the home who he went to the house. So she comes up to him, greets the pastor and gives him a card of her own and then walks away. He looks down on the card, and the card said, Genesis 3.10. So he put it in his pocket. When he got home, he was curious about what this verse said, Genesis 3.10. So he opens up his Bible, and he reads Genesis 3.10. Although I was in the garden, I heard your voice, but I was naked and afraid, so I hid. She hid in the garden. Adam and Eve hid in the garden because of one question. That question was, where are you? It was the very first question that God asked man. Shortly after, he said, what have you done? Where are you? What have you done? Each of us are going to stand before God one day. We're going to stand before God in judgment. Some to receive gifts and rewards. Some to receive judgment. And it all depends on where we are. Where are you? Spiritually, can you even now take inventory spiritually? Where are you at in your journey of faith? Where is your standing before God? And what have you done? The reality is God knows what we've done, doesn't he? He knows everything. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all been like sheep who have gone astray. Now, the question is, what have you done with your sin? What have you done with your sin? Some of us have tried to excuse our sin. Some of you have have hardened your hearts towards sin. Some of you have tried to make up over your sin by doing good things, good works. Is that enough? Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I'm so glad that you're here for the finale of our series, Into the Wild. We've been focusing on the life of Moses. We've been growing in our faith by by learning lessons from the wild, from from Moses. See, in that day, Egypt was the superpower. It was led by Pharaoh. He was like the king, the leader of that country. And he saw the, the children of Israel multiplying, and they were increasing in number. And so he was threatened by this, so he made them slaves. He, he turned them into build, building his own empire. Now, imagine if you were a, an Israelite and you worshiped the one true God and you were forced to serve and work in a system that oppressed all of your family, all of your friends, and that system worshiped 35 other gods and goddesses. So God heard the cry of Israel. He heard the cry like he always does. He hears the cry from the broken, the humble, the contrite. And he hears their cry for freedom. And he sends and calls a man named Moses. And he selects Moses. And he tells Moses, I, I want to equip you. I want you to, to go and I want you to be my mouthpiece. And I want you to, to lead the children of Israel and go to Pharaoh. 
And he, and he, he says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to, to let my people go. Now, some of you who, who grew up in church, you remember going to kids' church and you learned that, that, that little song. You remember that song? Uh, and, and so some of you, because of that learning that song, you think that Moses went and sang that song to Pharaoh. Uh, I don't know if that happened or not, but would you sing that song with me? Don't leave me hanging. Can we sing? If you know the song, sing it with me. Ready? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go. Huh. All right. If you didn't grow up in kids' church, consider yourself very lucky and blessed. <laughs> But he went to Moses, Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? He said, no. And as a result, God sent a plague. He would send frogs. He would send hail. He would send locusts. He would turn the Nile River into blood. All of these were plagues that God sent to soften the heart of Pharaoh. But after every plague, Pharaoh's heart became more hardened. See, God deals with sin very seriously. And oftentimes in your life, it may look like the Holy Spirit bringing conviction over your sin. You know what you're doing is wrong, and, and you have a, an opportunity to, to confess that sin to God, to, to make things right, to repent of your sin and turn to God. But what happens is when we harden our heart and resist it, we keep doing that sin. We keep, we keep going that selfish path, that wide road that would lead to destruction. God will allow a trial to happen, or he may send discipline in our life because he loves us, and he wants us to be set free from the thing that's enslaving our hearts and bringing destruction to our lives and our relationship. It's robbing the joy, robbing the peace, robbing the, the life. And so he'll allow things to happen to bring us to a place of humility, brokenness, and a contrite heart where we will turn to the Lord. And that's what he was doing to Pharaoh. But each time, Pharaoh would harden his heart, and he got so serious that he sent the, latest, the last and final plague. It was the worst of all. And he would tell all of the, Moses would tell all of the children of Israel and everybody throughout the land that they were to take a, a lamb, a lamb without any kind of blemish, and that they were to, to uh, shed its blood and to carefully catch the blood into a basin, and then take a, a hyssop branch. Now, everything about this, this final plague, this, this command of God was very symbolic. Even this hyssop branch that priests would have used often in their sacrificial system to make atonement for the sins of people, and they would, they would sprinkle the, the, the blood of the hyssop branch and it was a sign. It was, a, it was an example. The New Testament says everything that happened in the Old Testament is an example for us. It was an example for David when he committed the, the sexual sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And he felt such conviction. We have written his journal entry in Psalm 51. It said, create in me a clean heart like hyssop purging my sin and making me clean. Even in the Gospel of John, we see that the hyssop branch was dipped into sour wine and lifted up to Jesus, and he drank of this wine, and then he said, it is finished. So much symbolism here. But they were to collect, the, the carefully collect all of the blood from this lamb, and then they, they were told to take the blood and just put it on the doorpost of every house. They were to smear it as a, as a sign. You can imagine how, how nervous and how excited everybody was with this blood. They would have gone to each of their neighbor's house, their friend's house, and said, Hey, is there, is there blood on your doorpost? We've got we've to be obedient to what God has commanded us. Is there blood on your doorpost? 
We don't want the firstborn of your, your, your family to die. And so everybody in Israel would have done this. In Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 12 through 13, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a what? A sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will what? Pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There's so much emphasis and importance on the blood. They couldn't have used oil or wine or vinegar, sweat or tears. None of those things would have worked. It was only because of the blood. Why was the blood so important? Well, we discover in the book of Leviticus chapter 17, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Life is in the blood. There is power in the blood. When the blood is gone, so does life. Like life is associated with the, with the blood. It was very, very symbolic. So every doorpost that did not have the blood, then the death angel would come in and the firstborn would die. There was no cry, no scream from a parent louder than the day after the Passover when they woke up and their children in their arms, their son was in their arm, it was dead, and they would cry out in grief. No one was exempt, not even the palace. Pharaoh would go to Moses and says, it's enough. Go, get out of here, leave. Everyone. But imagine how grateful you would be if you were obedient and you took the blood of the lamb and it was passed over and you had your child and it was with you. Imagine how grateful, not only that your, your firstborn was spared, but now you were able to quickly leave this place of slavery, this place of, of oppression, and you were now going to be led out to eventually to the promised land to have your own identity as a country, as a nation. To be set free from slavery. That would have been in their hopes. That's what would, would have made them so excited. And so God instituted the Passover meal to remember this great Passover. Because everything is symbolic. So every year, much like you have a Thanksgiving meal. And you're, you do it because you're, we're grateful, right? We're thankful. We remember the Passover meal would have been when all the family members would have come over. Grandparents would have sat their grandchildren and they would have taken these bitter herbs and said, I want you to remember when you taste these bitter herbs, remember that your ancestors, how bitter it was to be in slavery. They would take unleavened bread. They would take the roasted lamb. They would take the wine. Everything was symbolic of that Passover moment. But what does Passover have to do with you? How can you apply that to your life? Why is that so significant? The Passover is significant. It's so important because it's a gospel. You see, everything about Moses that we've been learning, like even when he was first put into the Nile River, it points as a sign to Jesus. When Jesus first came on the scene, remember that, that John the Baptist, who was a prophet, he, the first thing he saw, you know what the first thing he saw when he said, saw Jesus? The first thing he said? 
He didn't say this is the king. He didn't say here's the Messiah. You know the first thing he said? He shouted out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was like, it's the Lamb. I see him. That is the Lamb. Once and for all, our sins can be forgiven through the Lamb. He pointed to Jesus. And so everything, even Jesus, when he was baptized in the Jordan River to symbolically show new life in God, Like just as Moses was saved when uh, there was a command and a decree for all children to be put to death, because Moses was put into the Nile River, there could be life. Same way Jesus in the, the Jordan River. Later, Moses, when God called him, remember it was that burning bush. It was on fire. God's a consuming fire. God, it, it would point later to Jesus would come to eventually baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. In Acts 2, there was like cloven tongues of fire upon everyone. And so even with the blood of this lamb, it points to the blood of Jesus. Everything. It's the power of the gospel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. And remember that the timing is, helps to bring this passage of Scripture. And, and when we understand the context, it gives great significance and weight. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Remember, every year, once a year, they're taking Passover together. So now Jesus, with his closest friends and his followers, his apostles, he knows that this time, his hour had come. And they're taking this, this Passover meal, and he's, he's knowing that he is the lamb. He is that Passover lamb. He takes away the sin of the world, and he says to them in verse 16, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup. And gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He sits with, the, with his disciples, and he takes, he takes items that were used for Passover meals, and he's saying, yes, look back and remember, but, but don't forget what you're about to see tomorrow. Don't forget that my body, once it's on the cross, is broken for you. The blood that I'm about to shed is being shed for you. And don't forget that this is the one true atonement, the only way you can be forgiven by your sins. The old system, the old law of sacrificial system of animals, it's going to be useless. It's not enough. And it was so important because even after the crucifixion of Jesus, there would be some Jews who would once surrender their life to Jesus, but under pressure from their family, pressure from their old system, or own internal expectations where they, they would wrestle with, would be tempted to go back to the old way. And how often do we do that? 
How often are we tempted to go back to an old faith tradition and, or, or we were forgiven of our sins, we received the grace of what Jesus has done on the cross, but then somehow the enemy deceives us and we go back to thinking that through performance, through our good works, that somehow it's enough to earn God's salvation, his favor and his blessings on, his life, on our lives. And, and truthfully, none of those things can earn God's love. None of those things can. In Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 4, the author is he's telling them, he's saying the old system, it says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. There's only one. There's only one lamb. Remember when Moses told the children of Israel to take the lamb. He says, take a lamb that it's in its prime of its life without any kind of blemish. Take that lamb, take it out in the country, sacrifice the lamb by the nation of Israel, shed its blood, and then make atonement of it. Let, because, because of the blood that it was shed, know that death is going to be conquered and that the children of Israel can be free from slavery. Now you let this be a, a running parallel with what Jesus has done for us. Was not Jesus in the prime of his life? Was he not without blemish? He had no fault, no sin in his life. He was taken out in the country at twilight, and he was sacrificed for the nation, not just for the nation of Israel, for, for them to be set free, but for you and for me to be set free from the captivity of sin and addictions and strongholds and hers, and it's because of the blood Jesus. And you know what's, you know what's the, the, the starkest contrast? Even though there's so much similarity here, you know what the big difference is? The lamb in the Old Testament was unwilling. No lamb would want to be led to the slaughter willingly. But because of Jesus' great love for us, his life was not taken from him, but rather he willingly laid his life down on the greatest torment of a, a cross, of a tree. And he hung there and he died in the th crown of thorns that pierced his brow and the nails that pierced his hands and his feet and the, the spear that pierced his side. The blood that flowed from his life as he gave up his life, he did this for you. And may we not forget, but may we remember with great thanksgiving and great hope that Jesus is alive and that we can be alive because of the blood of Jesus. That there is power in the blood of Jesus and there's nothing that can save us but the blood of Jesus. Nothing, not our own works, not anything but the blood of Jesus. John chapter 19, 14 through 16, we see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. It says, now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. 
And they took Jesus and led him away. See, he was killed on the night of Passover. He was, he was, it was a voluntary death. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31 explains that once we have put our faith in Jesus, received the forgiveness of sins, and we go back to an old life or we go back and drift back into sin, that it insults the blood of Jesus that was shed. The word of God says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy of the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The reality is that our sin cost Jesus much, cost him his blood, cost him his life. See, God is a God of love. He is love. And he offers forgiveness and mercy and grace, but he's also a God of justice. And he deals seriously with sin. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we confess our sin and repent of our sin and turn to God, know that what Jesus has done on the cross is enough. There's no horrible enough sin that would prevent you to receive forgiveness of your sins, to experience new life in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. When you surrender your life to Jesus and the motive of your heart is to follow him. Now, are you going to be perfect? No, we're not going to be perfect till we get to heaven. But that should not keep us from, from relying upon the grace of God in and through our life to follow after him to his purposes and to walk into freedom and not to walk into shame or walk into guilt or walk with fear. Because the power and the love of God and the power of the love of, of his, of his, through his blood is enough to set you free from fear, to set you free from the captivity of sin. It is enough. And that's the power of the gospel. It's the simplicity of the gospel. And so our response is to look how Jesus, how it cost him his blood as the Passover lamb. And say, Jesus, just as you lay down your life for me, I willingly lay my life down for you. I willingly lay my life down for my spouse, for my friends, in service, according to your purpose. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. There's a true story of a little boy whose sister got the same rare disease that he once had. And this is a disease that threatened her life. And so they had the same rare blood type, and a transfusion of blood was what was needed to help this boy's sister. So the doctor looked at little Johnny and said, Would you be willing to give your life so that your sister may live? And he looked at his sister who was pale and thin, 
he waited a moment, and with his lip trembling and a shaky voice, he said, I will give my blood to help her. And so they wheeled both of these children into a hospital room. The doctor would take the needle, he would insert it into the boy's arm, and as little Johnny watched the blood go through the tube, and when it was almost finished, he looked up to the doctor, and his voice was still shaking, and his lip was still trembling. He said, doctor, how much longer before I die? And it was at that moment the doctor realized that Johnny thought by giving his blood that he was going to die, but he was willing to do it. Fortunately, it didn't cost Johnny his life so his sister could live. But you know that Jesus, may we remember with great thanksgiving and worship and love that it did cost his life. And it was through his blood that we can be saved. It was through his blood that we can be forgiven. It's through his blood and only through his blood 